Hello, and welcome to the next installment in our series of conversations with surveillance academics. If you're joining us for the first time, Cam Hunters is a podcast that is put out by me, Julia Chan, and my colleague, Steffi McKnight, as part of our larger creative project of the same name. And if you want to know more about our work, please visit camhunters.org. Today, we are really pleased to bring you a conversation with Dr. Azadeh Akbari. And to introduce her, I'll read straight from her bio. She writes, I studied sociology and journalism in Iran and gender research at the London School of Economics and Political Sciences. I obtained my PhD in human geography from the University of Heidelberg. I then joined the University of Munster as a postdoctoral research associate in political geography. I have been a journalist for many years and worked as a communication manager and community outreach specialist at the UNHCR, UNICEF, and the British Council. I'm a professional amateur in Lindy Hop dance, documentary filmmaker, and cooking. I enjoy writing and reading a lot, obviously, and combine all my skills and passions in being a digital editor for the journals Surveillance and Society and Territory Politics Governance. I have founded Surveillance in the Global South Research Network to expand the scope of surveillance studies to include non-Western discourses and practices and create a place for exchange, collaboration, and activism against the undemocratic use of surveillance technologies. We hope you'll enjoy listening to our conversation with Azadeh as much as we enjoyed having it. Hello, everyone. We are here with our dear friend and colleague, Azadeh. So before we get started into our questions, Azadeh, would you like to talk about yourself and your research more broadly? Yes, thank you very much for having me. Um, it's very nice to see you again after the surveillance studies conference that we spent together. So if I want to start with the official things that I'm doing, I'm actually at the moment assistant professor in public administration and digital transformation. Uh, but to be honest, I'm not exactly a public administration scholar. So my research is very much actually about digital transformation, uh, especially in non-democratic contexts. So for my PhD, I did some research about uh, surveillance as spatial injustice uh, with the case study of Iran. And at the time, I actually looked at how different um, categories of data, for example, uh, footage from CCTV camera, cameras all around the cities, for example, in, in Tehran, is being used against women to control their clothing and hijab. And funnily enough, this was a research that I published three years ago. And today you see what's going on in Iran and how relevant it has become in that context. And something that a lot of scholars and activists were worried about is actually happening on the streets, that how an authoritarian government is using surveillance technologies to sort of oppress any kind of uprisings movement. So um, in that context, I'm, I would consider myself more of a surveillance scholar, but I'm also very much interested in critical information and communication technology for development. Because I think lots of the time when people talk about surveillance, it's they use a very universalist tone in a sense that they are talking about mm. data surveillance and digital technologies in a sense that it is similar or is functioning in a similar way all around the world. And if you want to talk about the countries of the global south, it's 
sort of immediately falls into the category of development and ICT for D information and communication technology for development. So what I'm developing with a colleague um, at the University of Oslo, for example, um, Sylvia Mazier, we, we are working together on critical ICT for D, which is exactly um, criticizing that kind of universalist approach to ICTs and how surveillance or other digital technologies are working in different countries. So that's also becoming a very important part of my research. I think that's great. I mean, yeah, um, I really resonate with that, with what you just said about being um, more attentive to the, the different kinds of surveillance that, that take place. And um, I just, gave a talk in my department on surveillance and um, Susan Cowell, who mm. we all know, um, was the was the respondent. And that's the point that she made as well, that there's this, you know, tendency sometimes to kind of use surveillance in this very blanket way without really thinking through what types of forms that surveillance takes and that it doesn't apply to everybody equally. And that we need to be very um, deliberate about how, when we're talking about surveillance, what are we talking about? Mm -hmm. I think it's also the reason why I felt very uncomfortable at the end of my PhD, because every time I talked about surveillance and the way surveillance works, um, for example, in Iran, it was treated as an exception, mm -hmm. whereas I think it's actually not an exception at all. It's actually how surveillance in a globalized world functions um, but then that kind of frustration um, developed itself into this research network that I started surveillance in the global south and it was basically this very simple idea of bringing people together to talk about that kind of thing to talk about um, surveillance practices and surveillance use of surveillance technologies in the countries of global south but not in an exceptionalist way but in a way that shows how these are all actually related and it's not necessarily this dominant Western voice in the academia that is describing how these technologies circulate and how these um, how different states are dealing with that, but, but also how private big tech companies are um, becoming more and more a huge actor when it comes to developing countries or it's all problematic how you describe these countries or <laughs> developing countries, global south countries, but you know what I mean. So this, this has been a challenge from the very beginning of my PhD. I remember when I was sending my proposal to different professors, one professor got back to me and said, I'm sorry, we don't have an Iranian studies department. And I was like, this is not about Iran. Do you have a German studies department when you're talking about spatial justice, for example, in the German context? And then uh, it has been going on like that forever. It's, um, it's very uh, challenging to sort of try to explain that these things, that we live in a globalized world and these things are connected, although people are talking about that all the time, when it comes to theory, somehow uh, people turn a blind eye. Thanks for that, Azadeh. That's a, a really interesting way. I mean, when I think about surveillance and similarly to what Julia just said, I always think about it in the context of it's geopolitical. It's about each space. It's about, it's intersectional, about who who's being targeted. And I think one of the things that you've been fighting for and advocating for is a free global internet, which I don't want to get you into that space as if you don't want to speak about it, but in terms of 
also another another way in which we need to think about of how our connectivity, global connectivity, also impacts surveillance and the ways in which we can talk about it. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. It's um, it's again something that I think has been on many people's minds for for a long time because. I can talk about my case study in Iran. And for a long time, we had different kinds of um, internet censorship in Iran. We had like preventive methods that were uh, technological ways of sort of curbing access to the, in, to the content on, on the free internet. So keyboard blocking, blocking the URLs, that kind of thing. And then we had interceptive methods that were basically surveillance methods. Mm -hmm. So you had man in the middle attacks that sort of and any kind of interceptive te technology. And there were other methods, reactive, more socio-political methods like Iran had a cyber army, they have, they arrested um, activists, uh, freedom, freedom of internet activists, any sort of person that had an influence in, in, in the cyberspace. But what happened recently, which is scary, um, and a lot of people have been advocating a, and trying to say why that kind of thing could be very destructive to any kind of internet freedom in countries such as Iran is the national intranet. And that's basically a local intranet in Iran that is um, all the servers are inside Iran, um, all the websites are being hosted inside Iran. And it means in times of crisis, um, all the network inside Iran actually functions without people having access to the free global internet. And all that content that is critical of the Iranian government sort of is um, flowing through that global internet. So basically you have two parallel kind of cyberspaces working next to each other. And it's a very dangerous thing because um, we have seen, um, for example, in 2019, we had five days of internet shutdowns. And according to many human rights organizations, we had 1,500 people being killed on the streets. So every time there's an internet shutdown, it means that bullets are being fired somewhere else. Wow. Okay. There's no evidence for that and people cannot mobilize themselves. And it's, it's a way of controlling anger and um, mobilization at the same time. And this time um, in 2022, in the, in the current demonstrations, the internet has been turned off, the global internet on and off. Uh, but also what is interesting is that the government is filtering and blocking any kind of communication channel that people can talk to each other. I mean, even online game platform, gaming platforms, mm -hmm. LinkedIn is being filtered, that kind of, you know, any, any sort of platform that makes it possible for two people to talk to each other. And it's, it has been unprecedented that the government does so many internet shutdowns, but at the same time filtering up any communication channels. And I think this is not the first time. It's Iran is not the only country that does that. And a lot of this is one authoritarian country does that and the others learn from it. As much as we've seen that at the beginning of the Arab Spring in Syria, Iran sent cyber army experts to Syria to train them. So these authoritarian governments also learn from each other. And I think we really need a free global internet, not only protecting people from authoritarian governments such as Iran, but also protecting people from profit-oriented companies such as Meta and Starlink mm -hmm. and that sort of 
big tech companies, we have seen that, for example, free basics in developing countries, what kind of controversies have been there. And these countries are basically harvesting data from, from different populations, especially in context that there are no data protection regulations in place. And we don't know what exactly happens there because we don't know what kind of data is being harvested if people have um, Facebook as, as the main platform on their mobile phones in developing countries. We have seen what happened in Burma. We have seen all sorts of controversies in different countries. So that's also worrisome for me that it is not also not falling into the hands of private companies. So we really need, I think, an internationally run um, free and global internet that at least provides people with some basic connection to the internet because I cannot imagine a future without access to the internet. Mm -hmm. Just sort of picking up on what you said, um, you know, there's so much um, kind of criticism of the internet and social media, you know, from the vantage point, from my vantage point, right, right in, in North America, um, you know, thinking about all the, the, the conflict that it kind of can feed into and that kind of thing. But this situation also shows that how, like how important these channels have become, you know, for better or worse. And I guess, I'm, you know, I don't know if this is really a question that you can answer, but there is a kind of tension between um, that kind of um, having these channels to, 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 to communicate and also that these channels can be um, heavily surveilled. And I guess maybe you've sort of answered this question, but like how, how can we manage that tension? Like is the, is the idea of a free and open internet that's not necessarily governed by any one body, would that, would that be a solution? Like, <laughs> does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think, I think free global internet is one solution. And I think there's enough money in this world to make that happen. <laughs> but also, I don't think that we necessarily need a very clear kind of answer to that. Because there are so many actors and so many things happening at the same time that I think this entire thing has, has a certain kind of ambiguity into it. And I sort of welcome that ambiguity. This is something that I've been recently thinking about having this discussion with a colleague because he's a philosopher and obviously he was talking about the ethics of ambiguity. And then I thought that's very interesting. Um, and that might become a paper we write together, but it's um, my, my initial question was in a lot of developing countries, you need a lot of um, these initiatives. You want people have to digital you want people to have digital identification. You want them to have access to the internet. You want them to learn how to use emails and so on. So it's about developing digital infrastructure in one country. But at the same time, if the government of that country is not democratic, if there is no way of democratic participation, if there is no way of people knowing what happens to their data or data regulation or data protection and that sort of thing, this is a huge dilemma basically. So. Do you want to go, um, do you want to work on the basis of development, digital development, or do you want to think more about the kind of hazards that it brings with itself, such as surveillance, for example? And I don't think there is a straightforward answer to that, but definitely I think here 
there's a lot of work to do with different actors, not only with the governments and the local civil society and so on, but also with the international organizations and a lot of human rights organizations that also are also active in those areas. We, I think people are doing fantastic research about how big tech companies are becoming involved, for example, in humanitarian aid and that's that sort of, we see Palantir is now working with WFP with the World Food Program. So th there is that kind of very um, uncomfortable uh, kind of collaborations between these companies and international aid organizations at the same time. So this is a very complicated kind of situation. And I think navigating through that is, is also very difficult. But what I find always interesting, at least in, in this case, um, what happens in Iran and how women's movement have um, movements have used social media platforms is very inspiring. It is also, in a sense, very much returning the gaze. It's um, you're surveilling us, but we are also using this in a way that you cannot control. So it's it's a fight, <laughs> but I I do hope that um, um, social movements win this fight. But it is um, it is a very kind of uneven. Um, situation and um, I don't think anybody has the, the right answer to that. What annoys me sometimes is uh, this kind of you know western media describing what's happening in in Egypt or in Syria or in Iran as Twitter revolutions or Facebook revolutions not really understanding mm. that these things happen. What happens on social media platforms is a continuation of years and years of resistance. Uh, it's a continuation of movements that have been in place for a long time. And there are affordances of these social media platforms that made things possible that were not possible before, that's true, but they are not happening in a, you know, in an isolated kind of environment, very much connected to a lot of other things. And I think that's very important when we are thinking about these things um, to to take to to take into consideration how things are connected historically, politically, and socially, and in so many other levels. One of the themes that Julia and I have really been wrangling um, or working with in the terms of camp hunters and surveillance in general, at least in the last year and a half, has really been. Uh, looking at care and care-centric methodologies or models uh, of thinking about surveillance. How do you envision that working within this work? Or is there any formal ways of care do you think that scholars and community members can apply to, to, to this question or these, these current events? Um, does care work within your work, you know, perhaps, you know, just self-consciously or even consciously in any capacity. We're thinking, we think a lot about care as like a methodology for, for research or a methodology for caring about participants, but even about each other and ourselves. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, um, I don't know, I haven't really thought about care as a methodology. That came up. I'm just saying this off the cuff. Uh, in the last two weeks, being sick and being involved in 
you know, different talks and interviews and trying to explain what's going on in Iran and why internet shutdowns are important and why people have to report about them and why, why do we have to stop them? And at some point, you know, you think I have to stop because my health does not allow me to do further. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'm sitting in a small city in, in North Germany and unfortunately there is no Iranian community here. So for me, it took a while also to sort of you know, try to find communities around that we can just scream together, <laughs> which is sometimes helpful. But then I found myself telling people constantly, this is something I care about. Yeah. And then it's, I, I started to think, you know, it's caring in a sense that also caring about subjects that might not be of interest directly to people, but taking care of that research in a sense that research is also that research also needs attention and that research you, you have to keep that sort of flame going in a mm -hmm. sense mm -hmm. otherwise it would be forgotten and I think recently we had something in surveillance of society journal about banal surveillance and how like everyday mm -hmm. acts of surveillance are being um, normalized and becoming part of our lives and you know, that's something that I think is even more politically important than, you know, writing grand theories about things. Mm -hmm. Like, this, this is something that is, you know, you have to poke people into their eyes constantly and say, look, look here, I mean here, what's happening here, you have to care about this. Mm -hmm. And you have to really care about the subject to make other people also care about that because you also generally care about how people live and you want them to have a free life so for me it's also not only caring about people it's also caring about what kind of research is politically relevant and how you can carry on doing that and not getting disappointed at the same time as I said like this research I did was done three years ago and it was like I got a really good, you know, because in Germany you get uh, grades for your PhD and I got a very good grade, but that was about it. <laughs> and then, um, it took a long time to sort of, for me also to be able to communicate why I think it's very important and that to be picked up um, by like activists and media. Um, so I think it's also caring about a subject, caring about kind of research outcome that you think would make a difference is also um, a kind of labor of love. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Um, well, speaking of labors of love, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about the, the surveillance in the Global South Network that you, you work on. Yeah, I haven't, I, I've been so busy that I haven't been actually <laughs> doing much lately and it's uh, kind of sad, but as I said, I started this network in a sense to, to make a space for people um, to feel, you know, safe to talk about their research in the countries of the global south, because I think lots of the time for a lot of people like me, English is, our not, is not our first language. Some of us, I have three active languages on, in my daily life. I'm like juggling words all the time and I'm not perfect in any any language anymore even in my mother tongue so there's a there is a barrier of language all these peer-reviewed journals that they 
they ask for a very specific kind of writing, style of writing. And you receive funny comments from people. I recently received a review that said, this paper has a German accent. Please give it to somebody who, uh, who, is, a, who is a native English speaker. So even, um, you know, it's, um, it's that kind of exclusionary culture that I, a lot of people experience. And that's something that I'm writing for the anniversary of surveillance and society is that people who do not have the correct names, the, the desirable kind mm -hmm. of names, they, they would rather submit to a journal on development or um, global south or that kind of, you know, category of academic research because that's where people belong. But you would hardly ever see somebody um, coming from Indonesia stand up and say, hey, I have a theory, a universalist kind of approach to how surveillance works. Mm -hmm. and it, it already says something about where theories come from and what kind of people are developing these theories. And if you look at these works and every time you criticize that people say, but that's the theory, theories are universal. And then I always think, okay, then maybe we should think about how we develop theories if mm -hmm. they are going put a large number of people on this planet away to develop something that is somehow considered universal. <laughs> I think that's problematic. Um, so in, in the network, the, I, I have tried to reach that kind of thing. So we had last year, for example, one workshop um, with a few researchers and there we tried not to have this normal conference format. So everybody had half an hour to present and then we had half an hour to discuss and it took a long time <laughs> but I think at the end we had some meaningful discussions it wasn't like 15 minutes of talking five minutes of Q&A and we carry on and we have something nice in our CVs and that's that's about it after the uh, conference after the conference in Rotterdam I was really hoping and then um, it actually resonated with with the board of directors at surveillance studies network at the same at the same time that we should have working groups and I would be very happy mm -hmm. to actually integrate this Global South research network into the bigger surveillance studies network because I think this is exactly what I wanted. I don't want another, you know, out, you know, standalone kind of research network for people who are not sort of not fitting into any other kind sure. of network, but I want the bigger network to actually provide space for that kind of discussion and, and be inclusive of those um, kind of academic research projects and so on. So that's the plan. Hopefully um, I've done some proposal writing and hopefully um, we will have the Global South network integrate into the bigger surveillance studies network. I'm so excited for that work too. And especially being on the board with you as an editor, I'm really excited for these working groups. And I think it's an excellent addition that you've proposed. Yeah, me too. Hopefully, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm also trying to collect some ideas about how we can make things inclusive because I think mm -hmm. this is kind of new in a sense. Unfortunately, that the journals would try to have more voices from different um, countries and from different kind of backgrounds, but what kind of structures and what kind of, you know, procedures should we facilitate or should we have in place to encourage people to do so? Mm 
and that's that's the important thing at, at the end practically what should we do that these things happen that we have more papers coming from the countries of the global south what kind of you know um support mechanisms what kind of you know restructuring would be needed to accommodate that kind of thing so that's that's also a kind of collective thinking that we should also partly also experience with to know if we're doing well or not or what what we should change to wrap everything up uh, because i do think that this is a, a really good segue into our general themed question for this season from your perspective, what is the most important topic or idea surveillance studies should be centering right now? <laughs> it's a big one. It's loaded. <laughs> I almost feel like you just answered it. Yeah, I know you did. I just, <laughs> but I also not very. I'm I'm a huge fan of not answering questions. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, making everything complicated. Um, that's what academics do (laughs) (laughs) because I don't think there is one there should be one important topic for everyone I think people look at things from very different perspectives Mm -hmm. and that's actually the beauty of academic debate Mm -hmm. Um, and what really makes me sad sometimes is this new cultural private privatized universities that is making us all so busy with publishing, constantly publishing, constantly attending conferences, constantly teaching that from that kind of academic debate remains kind of nothing. It's like people do not have the time to talk to each other and say, okay, this is interesting. Or I literally also don't have time sometimes to read. It's everything is happening with such a speed that sometimes you don't find the time to keep yourself updated and mm-hmm. that's the reason why I also wrote these proposals because I was like I need a break I need to sit down and think and that's the I think the main feature of an academic person is to, to mm-hmm. sometimes at least <laughs> have the time and capacity mental capacity to reflect and to think so for me there is not one topic that would that I would say I think this is this should be the agenda for surveillance studies but I think it would be great if we can find these spaces for academic debate and people who care (laughs) about one research (laughs) subject can actually talk to each other and that's the idea behind working groups as well because people who for example work on police surveillance then they have much more to say to each other than I don't know people who work on other issues but at the same time it would be great if if these two people not only deeply discuss what they're interested in but also talk to each other but before that we really need to make space for that kind of debate Um, and I think in that sense we would find a lot of interesting topics that somehow are also related to each other and I don't know if it has happened to you but if you go to a good conference or if you're in a good like functioning <laughs> departmental meeting and that in my university is very much encouraged and I really appreciate it that the different faculties are encouraged to work with each other so we have frequent sessions with other people from other faculties and then people start talking about philosophy and I might not understand 70% of the jargon they're using mm-hmm. but at the end I'm like wow that's super interesting I want to talk to you I want we have to do something together and 
that would be lovely if we have that in surveillance studies, I think. And I think I like surveillance studies network for that because it, it is a very friendly kind of space of exchange. And I hope that with all of us being involved in it, it, it would be also a place that people can exchange ideas. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, really thoughtful uh, conversation. I feel like this is a space that we've managed to kind of create today to have mm-hmm. to exchange some ideas. And um, yeah, thank you so much for taking time out. I know you're really, really busy. Thank you so much for having me. Exactly. This is also, um, that's why I didn't want to postpone this meeting because for me, it's, it is actually this lovely kind of, you know, not necessarily happening in a strictly academic situation, but also mm-hmm. just people who are interested in the same topic talking to each other. And um, it's it's just, I think it's it's the essence of academic life to have these kind of you know, exchange of ideas. Thanks, thanks for making it happen. <laughs> I know it's a lot of work. <laughs> well, we're very thankful to have you. It's always a pleasure catching up with you as a day, and I can't wait to see you again. I imagine digitally in whatever other work capacity <laughs> we will run into you. But um, I also want to say before we we end um, a big thank you and appreciation for all the advocacy and work you are doing right now and the emotional labor that's that's and care that's integrated in the work you're doing it's very admirable to see you really do that uh and at the level you're doing it and I know you're saying you're tired and you're, you've got a lot going on but it's really important that we do thank you for that work thank you that's very kind you're the best Yay. <laughs> thank you. yeah.